0: Well, there really is a joy a joy to to be together and a joy to sing songs like that and a joy to to be led in prayer by John Kim there's a joy in the house of the lord there's a joy to be in the lord and it doesn't mean that there aren't broken hearts here uh, this morning and uh, that's what's so important about church is that It's a place for those with broken hearts. God gives us grace as we come and receive of the grace that he gives. And the grace that he gives is not merely a force. The grace of God is Christ himself. And so when we come to church, we receive of Christ himself. And that's something that brings us joy because he himself said and promised, didn't he, that he would give us joy. And so he's given us so much and I know times can be hard. We have seasons of heartache. We have seasons of ease. And Wherever you find yourself this morning, I trust that you experience the kindness of God to you today. It's a beautiful day. To be a Christian. It's a beautiful day to be a Christian. We're in the middle of a three part series we've called A Life Worthy of the Gospel. You'll know that we made mention, if you were with us last Lord's Day, we made mention of the difference between an indicative and an imperative. What's an indicative? An indicative is the reality of who we are in Christ. It's a statement of fact about who we are. We're no longer, as we've sung this morning and spoken of and prayed about, we're no longer hopeless and without help in this world. We are children of God. We have the Spirit of God dwelling within us. We have new life flowing through our veins. That's the indicative. But with the grand indicative comes... The grand imperative, what's an imperative? What's an imperative? Come on. Because with the grand indicative of who we are as Christians comes the great call. In the form of a great question, how then shall we live? How then shall we live? Well, we are commanded, aren't we? We're commanded to live a certain way. We're not just given new life in Christ and then given all the licentiousness and liberty to live how we want. We are given the command. Last week, we looked at Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. You don't have to turn there. We're not going to be there this morning. We're going to be in another place. But we looked at that verse, verse 27, and it gave us what we called that supreme gospel-saturated command. You remember, it begins with the word only. Paul said there, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. We looked at that. We considered that, that Paul was in prison when he wrote those words, and he wasn't sure whether he was going to be released from prison or whether he was going to come and visit the dear church at Philippi. And so he said, whatever happens to me, just be about that one thing, right? Be about that one thing, living In a manner worthy of the gospel. That was the command. And then after that came that serious gospel saturated unity. Where we were told to strive together in one heart and one mind. And stand together in one heart and one mind. Having the same affections. Looking to the same savior. Drawing satisfaction from the same source. That we would be able to then live in a manner worthy as we do those things. And we do those things not in isolation on an island, but as a family, as a community of believers, we do those things. And then we began to apply that in a very pertinent way. Because verse 2 of Philippians chapter 4 said what? It said this, that there were two members of that church living in disharmony. Eodia and Syntyche. Two ladies that were squabbling. And we saw, and I made the application, that to live in a manner worthy of the gospel is to love one another from the heart. To love one another from the heart. To love the way God loves. God loves us in spite of our frailty and weakness and sin. He calls us to a righteous standard, but He loves us Even when we are not so lovable and therefore to live in a manner worthy of the gospel is to love those who at certain times are not quite lovely at all. And So that's the first way we began to apply. Living worthy of the gospel. Under that heading, a sequence of gospel saturated applications, and that was the first. And this morning, for our time together, I would love for you to turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. As we kind of continue, we continue to apply the command that we considered last week. that, That thing we must be only about. That one thing, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Meaning, that we are positionally holy. That we have been born again. That God looks at us. As ones who are clothed with the perfect righteousness of Jesus, perfect and spotless in his sight are we, and yet we still struggle with sin. First Thessalonians chapter four is going to be a time where we really begin to experience. The weight. Of the imperative, the weight of the command upon us, upon our shoulders. But it doesn't come, like the command in Philippians it doesn't come on its own. We don't have naked commands and naked imperatives, do we? We have gospel-saturated commands. And you see, a gospel-saturated life will not be a sin-saturated life. That's really what we'll see this morning. And so follow along with me in your Bibles as I read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to live or walk and please God, just as you do actually walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no man may transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. And attend to your own own business and work with your own hands. Just as we commanded you. So that you will behave properly toward outsiders not be in any need let's pray Father we we come having sung from a heart full of joy given from a heart full of gratitude prayed in worshipful adoration partaken of your son's table with gratitude and thankfulness in our hearts and now we come to your word with the same heart. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the warnings and commands and urgings and exhortations in your word. We thank you that you haven't left us as orphans, but given us the very mind of Christ. Father, we believe in the Holy Spirit and ask that he would attend both the listening and the preaching of your word. We desperately need your help because we are weak and we carry around sinful flesh. And so, Father, would you aid us and bless us? We want to be sanctified. We want to grow in love. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. I'm sure you'll agree with me that as Christians, we've been given much. I think you'll agree with me there. We've been given much. Not only have we received an abundant of amazing grace in the person and work of the Lord Jesus, who paid the penalty for all our sins. We've also received new life. We've also received the power in the person of Christ to live out all that that new life calls from us. We've received grace, but we're also given a good law. It's a good law. It comes to us in the New Testament. It's a rule of life and practice for us. We are not under the law as though it is meritorious for us. We are certainly under grace. That's a beautiful place to be. We don't just see shadows. We see The fullness of God's love in the person of Christ. We're in the new covenant. We're born into a very beautiful time. And yet, the imperatives, the commands we read of in the epistles, for example, are very good and necessary for us. God intends them as a wonderful blessing to us. And if we neglect them, if we neglect them, then a couple of things happen. For certain, we'll lose our joy. For certain. And for sure, God won't receive the glory that he is most worthy of. You know, it's been well said, and I really want you to remember this, that the power to excel in the Christian life comes from the power of the indwelling Christ. As Christians, as the beloved children of God who follow Christ in the power of the Spirit, we have much that we are called to do. One commentary I read this week had a comprehensive list of what we're called to do. With multiple scripture passages linked to each one, let me just give you a compacted version of that list of what we're called to do as Christians, as believers, we're commanded by God to confess our sin frequently. To pray and trust God continually. To pursue humility. To be content with God's will for you. To be willing to suffer for his name, to evangelize the lost, to celebrate the Lord's table, to care for one another, to honor God in our marriages and to honor God in the family, to be diligent and fruitful in acts of service to the local church. And that can seem like a ton. And it is. But the God who calls is also the God who enables, is he not? And the God who disciplines us when we go wayward and wayward and neglect those things that I just mentioned. He's not a tyrant. He, he's not a harsh dictator. But a loving father. Who wants us to live in light of his enormous love for us. And in light of the riches and the glories of the gospel. Revealed to us in the person of Christ. You see, we must live. So as to have our practice, our conduct. Align with our position. As I said a couple of times. Last week. We are those who are loved by a holy God and it only makes sense that we strive to live holy lives I grew up playing Australian rules football It's a good game Even Brad Clark told me it's a good game He's a rugby player Aerial ping pong though to the Kiwis, right? When we I started playing about the age 5 competitively stopped about age 18 so that's a long enough time to play a lot of Australian rules football and I played for one club particularly and painted on the wall there inside the club rooms large font were the words winning is not everything it's the only thing (laughs) that's sort of not very politically correct these days or wise some would say but the reality is if we play we want to win right the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you will win. These days, no one gets a prize, right? For Some races. But run in such a way that you may win. Well, I can tell you that I may have had some good games of football, some not so good games of football more of the latter than the former, but no matter how good we did as a team or no matter how good I did as a player or my other players did, the senior coach standing in front of those infamous words would spray us down with his own words of, well done, good work, next time do better. Next time do better, because you can do better, he used to say. So, this morning, I want to draw our hearts and minds to the words we just read, where the Apostle Paul, the senior coach, if I can say such a thing, tells us we're doing well. We're doing better. We're doing good, rather. But do better. Feel the weight of that. Do better. Excel. Still more. Thrive. Do more and more. Do it better. As we journey through verses 1 to 12, I have three spheres that we need to excel more. Three spheres where we are called by God to do better. Number one, if you're taking notes, we live worthy of the gospel by living before God. In verses 1 through 8. Look at verse 1. Finally then brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus, Paul says. We request and we exhort. Very specific words, Paul is being a gentle shepherd here. The word exhort is the Greek word there to convey the idea of coming alongside, palakaleo, the idea of, of, of gently coming alongside someone. The word request is also gentle. It's not a demand. It's a humble way of offering a suggestion. You say, well, why does Paul do that? He is an apostle. To tell them what to do, they do it. No, no. Paul's being gentle here. And one reason he is, is because that he's already conveyed to them the very significant things that they were to obey. And now... He's coming back alongside them and he's not being overbearing to them. They'd paid attention to what Paul and even Timothy and Silas, if you look at the very first verse of 1 Thessalonians, the three of them greet the church. They'd paid attention to what they had been called to do. But look at verse 13 of chapter 2 for a moment. For this reason, Paul said to them, we also constantly thank God. That when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, full of imperatives, full of commands, full of what they must do. You accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. Which also performs its work in you who believe. Verse 14, for you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. But you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. And so that's why this letter itself opens the way it does. Look at verse 2 of the very first chapter. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. Constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, and your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of God, of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. This was a church that was doing wonderful works of faith, laboring in love, it was steadfast. Paul had taught them what the new life in Christ demands. It demands submission to the commands of God. And instead of lambasting them and burdening them with just kind of this kind of do more better kind of stuff, Paul gently appeals to them. He doesn't run to the command right away. He comes alongside them and he says, you are doing really well. But do better. You've not made it yet. You're not there yet. You know, at the heart of such a call is Paul's own realization of his own life. You remember the words? Listen to Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 and 14. Paul says, not that I have already obtained it all. Or have already become perfect. But I press on. He says. I press on if I, if I may also take hold of that which I was ever taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Paul says brothers and sisters. I do not regard myself as having taken hold of it yet. But one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind. And reaching forward to what lies ahead. He said what? I press on. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul longed for maturity and spiritual excellence to be ever increasing in his own life. And so he's not being a hypocrite here. When he tells them to excel still more, it's a desire of his own heart. It was a spirit wrought desire that God had placed in his own heart, that he was most certainly genuine about. And he sought to motivate his fellow brothers and sisters to do the same. In many ways, he was like the captain of a sports team. You think about captains, you think about some of you have coached sports. I'm hearkening back, I mentioned Australian rules football. You think about those sports, and if you're a coach and you're looking for a A person that might serve as a captain, what are you looking in them? What are you looking, how do you identify them? Will you see that they're zealous, number one? They bring encouragement as well as bringing charge. The best captain in a team will not only charge the players to do what they need to do, but encourage them as well. And I would add as well, acknowledge when they fail. The captains love their team, they love their teammates. The captain draws from their own desire, and they use that to motivate others. Paul longed for this church here in Thessalonica or Thessaloniki to to be ever increasing and ever progressing towards further aligning their position with their practice. They were chosen and loved by God, oh, that they would be moved to love more and more The one whom had chosen them to inherit such riches. That's exactly what God wants from us. To be moved more and more. To love the one to whom. Had chosen to. Lavish us with such riches of his grace. You know. Sometimes. Sometimes. Life can just get very religious. What I mean by that is we can just come from one Sunday to the next, and we have Monday to Friday and Saturday in between, and we just kind of do this. We just kind of do it. I would love for us all just to take just a little moment right now and just remember what it was like to be in the kingdom of darkness. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home and that darkness wasn't as dark as some of us who didn't grow up in a Christian home. But just remember for a moment that 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 state of lostness that you experienced and that that state of just heartache over your own sin and the, the consequences of your sin. Maybe that'll help in in grasping anew the enormity of the love of God that has been, been displayed to you and I. When we've been transferred from that kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And it all came as a result of God's love. Where we were children of wrath and we become children of grace and children of abundance. And maybe the more we think about that, the more we will want to please him in every regard. That's what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel before our God, to live pleasing to him. Paul writes that in verse one. How you ought to please God, he says. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 and 10 Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive, that's believers, each one may receive compensation for his deeds done through the body in accordance with what he has done, whether good or bad. And so we have been greatly loved by God. We make it our aim to be pleasing to God because one day as believers, you and I will stand before God, not in a judicial punitive sense, but we will be Receiving compensation for what we have done in our body, whether good or bad. Feel the weight of that. To be pleasing to God is the longing, is it not? For the child of God. The Lord Jesus himself said in John chapter eight, verse twenty nine, he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. Jesus said, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. The Apostle Paul, here in this letter, look at verse 14 of chapter 2. To? No. We'll come back to that. Listen to what the author of Hebrews writes. In Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6. He says, without faith it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. And that he is a rewarder of those who seek him and then in chapter 13 verse 21 of Hebrews it says this now may the god of peace equip you in every good thing to do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through jesus christ to whom be the glory forever and ever and then listen to 1 john chapter 3 verse 22 beloved if our hearts if our heart does not condemn us we have confidence before god and whatever we ask we receive from him Because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. To live a life worthy of the gospel, we must live before our God, being pleasing in His sight. Verse 2 there, look there in your Bibles. Paul then says, For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. That little word by there is the Greek word that means through. Paul's saying here that these instructions don't come from him. They come from Jesus himself. They come from God to us through the Lord Jesus. And so so here we know that scripture simply doesn't come to us on a human level with human instructions. But... God's very words come to us. They command us. We ought to live before God in a way that pleases Him. We ought to what? As I said before, confess sin frequently. Pray and trust God continually. These are some examples about how we live pleasing to Him. Pursue humility. Be content for God's will for you. God's will for you. Speaking of God's will, look at verse 3. For this is the will of God for you, your sanctification, your holiness. That's the broad way to describe God's will for us, is to make us holy. Then there's a very specific example to illustrate. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Broad term, anything sexual that occurs outside the confines of the marriage between one man and one woman for life. Thessalonica in the first century here was in the Greco-Roman era. Sexual immorality, fornication, was not even considered a sin. Didn't blush at it, didn't blink at it. The cultural norm, as Paul wrote these words, was that sexual activity outside the confines of marriage was simply just normal. was fine. And so God, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, through the pen of the Apostle Paul... It's calling the believer to live with the culture of the day as the standard of what not to do. Our day is a day when sexual activity outside of the confines of marriage between one man and one, one, man and one woman for life is not considered sinful either, right? It's just not. It's not even given a second thought. But look now at the prayer of the Apostle Paul for the church at Thessalonica and how it reveals God's heart to us. Look at verse 13 of chapter 3, just above the verses we're in. Paul prays that God may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father The coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Sexual sin outside of marriage is unholy and sinful. To live in a manner worthy of the gospel is to be free from sexual sin and immorality. To abstain from it, it says in verse 3, look there that you abstain from it. Idea of the Greek word there is to have nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with it. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 <clears throat> verse 13 to 19 the body is not for sexual immorality but for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin that a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God and that you are not your own? For you have been bought for a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. This is all under the heading about living before our God. I remember... Lisa and I's premarriage counseling. I obviously engage in premarriage counseling a lot. And I and I do this in each of the times that I have, because it was done to Lisa and I. <clears throat> the pastor says there's a there's a story of um young man and young woman. And uh pastor said to them, someone saw you guys, someone saw you guys doing what you shouldn't be doing, and the look on their face, just turn white, and the pastor says to them, "Yeah, God swear and they say, oh, phew. No one actually saw, another person didn't see, but God saw. That's the response. It's the wrong response. We we live before God. God is worthy. And the Christ of the gospel is worthy, is he not, for us to flee sexual sin and abstain from it altogether. Look at verse 4 now. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. <clears throat> That's a call to all people in the church to keep their bodies pure and undefiled from sexual sin. Defiled from sexual sin. Verse 4 really conveys the idea of self-control, right? Each of us must know how to possess, it says, his own vessel. If you've looked at this, you know the debate. Is his own vessel his wife or is his own vessel his own body? Well, the term his is generic. It's referring to everyone. How many times in the Bible do we read about his, but it's talking to men and women? Vessel here, the word you used to speak of all sorts of vessels, household items, all sorts of stuff. This is referring to our own body, not our own wives or husbands, but our own bodies. Paul saying there in verse four, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel before God, we must control ourselves. Control ourselves. Not verse five. Look in lustful passion, like Gentiles who do not know God. Those who know God are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Those who don't know God have not the Spirit of God. And the fruit of the Spirit is what? Self-control. We have the spiritual resources to pluck out the eye and cut off the hand. Those who do not know God, the unbeliever, who do not have the Spirit, Do not. God is worthy of our severing of all sexual sin. We bring glory to our heavenly father when we do not live as children of the devil. We must control our minds, our passions, our bodies. What's one of the chief ways we do that? What's one of the chief ways we control our minds, our passions, and our bodies? I would say, we do that by making use of the means of grace. You know those? We pray, we preach, we sit under preaching, by that I mean. We partake of the Lord's table, we fellowship with one another. You read God's word. That's how we do those things. Anything else, as Paul wrote to the Colossians, is just harsh treatment of the body that accomplishes nothing. Just some form of aestheticism. But look at verse 6 now. That no person transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. What does that mean? What that means is, dare not ever use another person for your own sexual gratification. Jesus said in Matthew 18, something towards this, that it would be better for a millstone to be tied around your neck and you drown in the sea than for you to cause another person to stumble in that way. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. Just as we also told you before and we solemnly warned you. Verse 7, because God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in holiness, in sanctification. This is what it means to live a life worthy before God. Verse 8 tells us that if you reject this, you're rejecting the God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. The spirit that is called in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, a spirit, the spirit of holiness. Flick over to Second Thessalonians for a moment, chapter 2. Look at verse 13. This is the second time Paul writes, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord. Because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Well, that's really the first heading. It's almost a sermon in itself. But we must look now at number two. We live worthy of the gospel by living before each other, we've considered living before God, and now in verses 9 and 10, we see how we live worthy of the gospel by living before each other. Look at verse 9, now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. This is what marks a Christian. This is what m- must mark you and I. Purity and charity. Sexual purity and love. Love one another. But notice, interesting phrase, interesting way to put it. for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. We don't need to write to you, he says. It's a unique phrase there, taught by God. It's only used here in the New Testament. And so when you ask yourself about this, you're like, well, God the Father in the Old Testament certainly teaches the necessity of love. It's in the law. And when you think about it, God the Son in his earthly ministry, what did he do? He taught the disciples to love one another. But this here in verse 9 is talking neither about those two. This is referencing the work of the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 5 verse 5 tells us that the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The new covenant was promised in the Old Testament as a time when God would teach us by the Spirit in our hearts, well, the new covenant has arrived. So think of it like this. A family of blood relatives, earthly relatives, we just know we ought to love one another, right? We just, I mean... Even if we're not loving one another in the home as we ought, we we know we ought be. We just know that. Well, in a supernatural way, the Spirit has taught us, the family of God, to love one another. To love our brothers and sisters in Christ, to truly evidence that we actually are Christian. You remember that? 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, we know we have passed from death to life. We've been transferred from one kingdom to the other. We know we've been passed from death to life because we love the brothers and sisters. You cannot say you love God if you do not love the brothers and sisters, even those that I spoke of last week, that we don't see eye to eye with. We ought to love them. Look at the end of verse 10. But We urge you to excel still more. I want to ask you a question. We might preach till noon. That wasn't the question. Oh, is it okay to we preach till noon? No. <laughs> Here's the question. I found... The application from last week's sermon, pertinent and piercing and challenging and real and significant. And I know a number of you did too because you told me. But between last Sunday and this very moment, how did you go? Or is it just some esoteric thought that hangs here? But how how did you go? Because I'm sure, and I know, there are opportunities for us to love one another and excel still more. And so God is saying to you and I, as an expression of His kindness to us in His word this morning, love one another. More? More? And more. And don't just rest on your laurels. Matthew Johnston. More and more. It's easy to love those. Jesus spoke about it so often. Rebukes us in his word. It's very easy to love those that are easy to love. It's very easy to love those who don't do you any wrong. But I call you to love those. Who are even hard to love. Just as a family of blood relatives knows they must love one another, and then they work to love each other because they're family. Well, supernaturally, we are family, blood-bought by the precious Lord Jesus, and we must love one another. Look at the prayer, in verse, beginning in verse 11 of chapter 3. I read you the final verse, but let's read the whole prayer beginning in verse 11 of chapter 3. Paul says to this beautiful church, God says to this beautiful church here at Riverbend, Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another, and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame, in holiness before our God and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. That's what it means to live worthy of the gospel. And I think we'll just do a whole another sermon next week on what it means to live a quiet life. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and say thank you for the privilege it is to be here and to be called by you and to be a child of yours and no longer a child of this this world father we long to live pleasing in your sight the way in which we do that among many is by being holy in our lives, abstaining from sexual sin, Father, you have not called us for the purpose of any impurity, whether that's impurity sexually or impurity in our speech, impurity in our conduct, impurity in any manner of way in which we live, but you've called us in holiness and how we long, Father, how we long. live a holy life to increase in love for one another Father we take your call to excel still more and we ask Lord that you might give us the grace to do that that you'd plant in our hearts a desire to excel still more in living a life that pleases you and living in love for one another I pray for anyone here, Lord, who is outside of your love. Who lives a life that doesn't please you. Not because it's not a life of perfection, because it's a life of rejection. Rejecting your beloved son. Father, we pray for any soul here that is facing an eternity without you, that they would come to know the Lord Jesus today. Father, we want you to be a father to them and not an avenger. Help us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.